Good morning, and welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. If you've been with me for a while, you know that we're in the midst of a study of the book of Romans. And by the way, if this is the first time you've joined us, I please encourage you to go back and listen to some of the previous studies so that you can follow through all of the unfolding of this amazing book, the book of Romans. Today I want to pick up our reading in chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 21 and read on through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. As I say, if you've been with me for a while, you remember since the first chapter of the book of Romans in verse 17, we've been discovering an inescapable truth about humanity. And by humanity, I mean you and I. And that inescapable truth is this. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And not just that all of us have sinned, but that we face accountability for that sin. We face judgment, as Hebrews 9 puts it. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. We are all in an impossible situation, an impossible dilemma. And there's nothing that any of us can do ultimately to solve a sin problem. Oh, we can turn over a new leaf. We can begin to try to be religious. We might even go through some religious rites and sacraments. But that doesn't change the reality that we have sinned and no longer are living in accordance with God's truth. As the verse 23 put that I read to you, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that falling short is a critical, critical question. Now, someone can say, now why does God go to such great lengths to talk about this? I mean, couldn't he just say that and then move on to other things? We spent the latter part of the first chapter, we spent all of chapter 2, and now we've spent most of chapter 3 saying the same thing, repeating the same issue. Why does God go over so much and give over so much space to this question of our sin? to the question of our accountability and judgment, to the question of our hopelessness and helplessness. And the answer to it is pretty straightforward. God goes to this great length because unless one understands their true condition, unless they really see not only that they're a sinner, but that it matters, that God holds us accountable for that, And unless something is done to remove the very stain and accountability of sin in our lives, we are destined forever to be separated from God. Unless one understands that, the meaning of the gospel can never be really grasped. We can't be saved trusting in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us unless we're convinced that we're lost. You follow it? And so God, speaking in eternal frames of reference, says, This fact of the sinfulness of humanity 
then the accountability that they face before me is so important, I'm going to address it in this extended way. And by the way, he doesn't just do it in Romans, but certainly here in Romans. I'm going to address it in this extended way so that I make it plain that everybody needs the gospel. You remember that verse 16 of the first chapter? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And it is the only way to be saved. <laughs> and therefore, salvation is so important. Well, verse 21, let's get back to our study. That's the backdrop. And I hope that answers the question in case it's occurred to you. Like, why do we keep addressing this question in the book of Romans? Because God loves us. We need to understand with no confusion the dilemma of humanity. That dilemma Ephesians 2 talks about as being hopeless, objects of wrath, hopeless and helpless and without God in this world. To see ourselves in that way, although it's a downer, is really an upper because it puts us in a place where we say, oh Lord, what can I do? What have you done? What solution is there to the unsolvable? And that sets the stage to talk about the power of the gospel. Well, at any rate, verse 1 says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now. And last time we were together, I picked up on that phrase and ended our time with it because what a wonderful phrase that is. What wonderful words. If in fact, God's diagnosis of us is correct, that we are lost sinners accountable before him and without hope in this world, by object, by, by nature, objects of wrath. It's an impossible circumstance unless God does something. And it is exactly what's happened. But God, <laughs> all of this message unfolding since chapter 1, verse 17, comes together and God says, but God. <laughs> but God's done something to solve this problem. And God's great answer, God's wonderful answer, revolves obviously around Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. Now, we see here in verses 21 to 24 that Christ's righteousness is the only solution to the sinner. It is the only solution to those who, once having sinned, are stained by that sin and accountable for it. Notice how he puts it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then are justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The dilemma of humanity to begin with is indirectly linked in a sort, well, not even indirectly, directly linked to the issue of God's righteousness. You see, the God who is really there, our creator, he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, uh, his attributes, his very nature is such that sin cannot dwell in his presence. Sin cannot have continuing experience of relationship with God. That's why we're separated from him, why we're accountable for sin. This righteousness of God, which stands in the way of a sinner's relationship with God, has been demonstrated to us in several different ways. Manifested is the terminology used here in Romans 3. 
The word to be manifested comes from a Greek word, phenero, which means to disclose, to uh, make visible or clear, to move something into plain view, something that was perhaps hidden. Uh, God says his righteousness, which is the reality that a sinner has to address when they stand before God, his righteousness has been manifested, brought into plain view in several ways. Let's talk about those ways because that's foundational to our understanding of this passage. Chapters 1 to 3 have made it very plain to us that God's righteousness is first of all manifested, revealed to us, brought into plain view for us by the very nature of his law both that law written in the scriptures and that law written on the conscience of men and women in their very act of God's creation of them. That law showed us something about what God is like. When we see his righteous standards in the scriptures, and when we sense those standards or some of those standards within the nature of our conscience itself, we begin to understand what righteous is in relationship to unrighteous what holy is in relationship to sin. His holiness, God's holiness, is seen as a contrast to the unholiness of humanity. Man's frailty, man's sin, man's conscious determination to do harm and to exploit others, and certainly to reject what is true about morality and righteousness as God's word in our own conscience reveals it to us. <laughs> One of the ways we understand the very righteousness of God is to see his law. And when we see his law, the inevitable outcome for me and for you is guilt. And therefore, we seek to hide away from him. I was thinking of the very first picture we see of humanity in the garden after Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel against God. When God then went to the garden and was walking in the garden, it says they hid from him. Why? Because they were sinners now. <laughs> Their sin would have been absolutely evident to them and of course evident to God and therefore they sort of hid from them. In John chapter 3, in talking about the righteousness and, and the holiness of Christ and what he came in the world to do, there's a light in the darkness. It says that people in love with their sin stay away and shrink back from the light. They don't want to get close to it. Therein is the problem. God's righteousness is revealed in his word and in our conscience. But humanity in rebellion against God seeks to close out those messages the law is revealed by contrast with lawbreakers' orientation. By the way, that's why even the great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, as he stands before God in his vision of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died, it says, he sees God and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here is a prophet, a righteous man, humanly speaking. But in he sees God, he sees the truth about himself. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen God. That'll be the response of everyone who has ever lived. If they come before God, and they're standing before God based on their own life. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That will be the response.
And the conclusion, of course, back in verse 20, which is the previous verse to what I read today, is that there's no justification for anybody in the law because the law simply reveals our own failure and limitations, the fact that, in fact, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, at any rate, that's the law, both in our conscience and in the revealed scriptures, the Old Testament particularly, helps us to understand something of what the righteousness of God is, which is the standard before which we must stand, then the standard before which we all fall short. The second way this passage talks about that this righteousness of God is manifested is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, God is making it plain to us, his righteousness. He's making it plain to us so that we have some objective standard to understand our true dilemma. First of all, the word and our conscience, and then the Lord Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) Well, in what way was the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus? Well, because Jesus did everything right. He was perfect. He was holy. He is the only one who's ever been in this world who stayed righteous completely all of the time in all that he did, all of that he thought. He was righteous and holy in everything. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it tells us he knew no sin. He was without sin. Even in the midst of the worst of the circumstances, he was tempted as we are and yet without sin, as Hebrews makes plain to us. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says this. Listen to these words. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. There's only been one without blemish or spot in history. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. The one born in Bethlehem, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is returning yet once again to this world. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone met perfectly the righteous standards of God. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone was holy and could be seen as holy in comparison with God the Father. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only is the one before whom all the standards of God were met. So God's righteousness, the reality of the holiness of God, the standard by which we will be judged, is seen by his law and by our conscience, and also seen in the perfect life of Jesus. To me, it's very interesting that even the unbelieving humanity, when they're talking about great uh, examples of history, Jesus Christ inevitably is mentioned as, as sort of a standard bearer of what a righteous life is all about. So there it is, the second of those manifestations. Now, the point of these verses I read to you, though, verses 21 to 26, is that there's yet now a third picture, a third manifestation, a third way of making the righteousness of God move out into plain view. The gospel reveals to us a third way for the righteousness of God to be made clear and real. Now, why does it do that? How does it do that? The righteous, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
The gospel says the good news, this power of God unto salvation for all who believe, as Romans 1.16 puts it, the gospel says that if we will place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father will take and apply that perfect life of Christ, Christ's perfect righteousness and holiness, and he will apply it to our account. In other words, what was manifested, made plain by the perfect life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived, will be made real and applied to sinners like you and I if we respond in repentance and faith. And therefore, this passage is telling us there's yet a third way in which the very righteousness and holiness of God can be manifested. That third way is by attribution. That righteousness of God revealed in our conscience in the scriptures, demonstrated and revealed so dramatically in the word of, word of uh, life, Jesus Christ coming into this world, being born and lived, it will now be manifested, expressed in the life of the believer. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I've already mentioned, but let me read you the whole verse, underscores the reality of this promise. For our sake, he made him to be sin, meaning the Father made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me repeat it again. It's such an important verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, meaning he took our sins upon himself when he went to the cross. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The solution to our sin, to the fact that we've fallen short and are under judgment before God because of our sin, that we are separated from God. The solution to that sin and separation involves receiving that perfect righteous life that Jesus Christ lived. And it's offered in exchange for the sin of our life. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now able to stand before God as we stand before him in judgment based not on our stumbling and failure and falling short, but instead based on the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember I said this section begins, but God, what an amazing thing God has done and made possible for faulty, frailing, accountable men and women. We have a way of standing before him no longer based on the life we lived. We are not going to stand before him based on trying to solve our sin problem by some sort of turning over a new leaf, some sort of religious life, some sort of sacrament we may go through. Instead, we can stand before him now, sinners though we were, and know that God has placed our sin on Jesus Christ and has taken that perfect life that Jesus Christ lived and credited it to us, like put it on us. The scripture uses the terminology of clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. I've, I've got new clothes on when I stand before God, and that those clothes are the perfect, holy, righteous life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived. Here's the point. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and the very standard of God. And therefore, all of us are in a position of no hope. 
if based on our performance, because once we've sinned, we are sinners. Now, we might try to do things to try to not sin so much in the future, but once we've sinned, we've become sinners. Once we've sinned, we can no longer be considered righteous. There may be degrees of being unrighteous, but we're either pure or we're not. We're either righteous or we're not. And God's standard is his own righteousness and holiness. Therefore, nobody has any hope. No matter how hard we may try, as verse 23 says, we will all fall short. Trying to pass God's judgment and have confidence in that day when the standard is the very righteousness and holiness of God. It, it's so futile, it would be like you and I deciding, I'm going to try to jump the Grand Canyon. Now here's the point. Some of us, in trying to jump the Grand Canyon and get to the other side, from one side to the other, we may jump out 15 feet. Or if we're even better at athletes, we might jump 20. And possibly, there may be somebody who could jump 30 feet. But you know the, the problem? Even at 30 feet, we go down. <laughs> There's no way to bridge the gap. Our efforts can never bridge the gap. We will always fall short of the standard necessary to be saved. And to fall short not only means we lose, but that we face eternal judgment and separation from God due to our sin. And therefore, among humanity, it doesn't matter whether this person was able to jump five feet, or this person even ten, or this person fifteen or twenty, or even this exemplary person thirty, everyone fell and had fallen short of what was necessary in order to have eternal life in the presence of the Lord. This passage tells us, though, that God offers to those who fall short, which means all of us, God offers to us who fall short a wonderful gift. Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God says, I got a gift for you. If you see yourself as I'm trying to make clear to you that you are one who falls short, a sinner, and ultimately hopeless in accountability as a result of that, I have a gift for you if you will place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A gift, and that gift is redemption. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, pick up on this same sort of concept. Listen to these wonderful words. For by grace you've been saved through your faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of any works you've done, so that no one can boast before him. A gift from God. Remember the phrase in verse 21, But now God. <laughs> but God. What a wonderful thing God has done and made available to us. The gospel, this ver chapter 1, verse 16 message, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. This gospel tells us that we can be saved, we who are hopeless and helpless ultimately, can be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third manifestation of the righteousness of God. <laughs> it's at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the covenant that God's made with us. His righteousness is seen in the law, 
and in our conscience. His righteousness is manifested and seen in the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived. And now he tells us his righteousness will also be seen and can also be seen in those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because now that righteousness is clothing our lives. So that when he looks at us and sees us, we are righteous like Jesus. Remember, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an amazing truth. It's the only path that leads to a future and a hope. What a great solution God has created for us. In verse 21, he told us the law and the prophets bore witness to this. Why? Because as you read the Old Testament, you discover God kept promising an ultimate sacrifice for sin, an ultimate way to solve the sin problem which has plagued humanity from Adam and Eve to the current day and will continue to plague humanity until the Lord Jesus returns. The law and the prophet bear witness to this message that is the power of God unto salvation. These verses, verses 21 to 26, Help us to see that God offers to us the very righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ in response to our faith. The righteousness of God is the inevitable and unalterable standard to be saved and to stay saved. That nature of God, that righteousness of God was revealed in the law. That righteousness of God was revealed in the very life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And the promise to you and I is if we will admit our sin and repent and turn from our rebellion against God, our failure, our falling short, and place our faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross, God will apply the perfect life of Jesus to our personal account. In other words, you and I can now stand before God based on the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Not based on our lives, but based on his life. We've already seen conclusively throughout all of Romans to this point, there is no hope for salvation based on our performance because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So now God in his great love for us offers to those who truly have fallen short me, you, everybody. He offers us a gift. And that gift is the gift of forgiveness and that righteousness of Christ credited to us, placed upon us. What an amazing, amazing truth. Now, in the verses ahead, starting in verse 24, because we're not finished looking at these verses, we encounter two amazing words. The word justified and the word redeemed. I've alluded to those terms to this point. Join me next time, Lord willing, and we'll begin to unfold those words more richly because throughout the book of Romans and elsewhere, the word justified is defined for us. To be justified is to be found righteous in God's eyes. How does a sinner get found righteous in God's eyes? Only if the basis of the judgment is on the righteousness of Jesus, not ours. Join me then, won't you? And God bless as you reflect on these amazing things 
that are the but God solution to humanity's sin. God bless.